Amen, friends. Imagine with me, if you will, a farmer getting ready to plant for many in our congregation. That's not hard to imagine because many of you just went through the planting season. But imagine getting the planter ready to go, getting all the seed in the hoppers, making sure everything is working and functioning right, getting the tractor hooked up, driving out to the field, and getting stuck in the snow because it's mid-January and you're trying to plant corn in Minnesota. I don't know much about planting, but I know that that farmer would be silly to try to do that. We don't plant in January, right? We plant in April, maybe early March if the year's been good. Probably not, though. Most likely we plant in April. We don't plant in the middle of January in Minnesota. A farmer who did must be thinking, it doesn't matter that it's not the time for planting. I'm going to do it anyway. But the sad truth of reality is that no amount of stubbornness will change the season in farming. Right? Our farmers know this. No amount of stubbornness will make it time to plant. No amount of stubbornness will cause the crops to grow quicker and make it time to harvest. A farmer who refuses to follow the seasons is either ignorant or a fool. Right? And is not going to be a farmer for long because they're going to have dead crops. Or they're going to have no growth. Farming has seasons. And those seasons reflect the way that God has designed our world. That we function in time and in seasons. Just like farming in general, life has seasons. The challenge is for us living in God's world under the sun is that we can so easily look at the seasons of life and be like the stubborn farmer who wants to plant in January. And we can say, I don't care that this is what life is presenting me with right now. I'm going to do this. I'm going to treat this season of mourning like it's a season for laughing and dancing. We can't do that. No amount of stubbornness will change the season before us. Part of learning to live wisely under the sun that we see now in Ecclesiastes, the preacher turned to, is learning to navigate with wisdom the seasons of life. We're going to see that as we go through. How do we navigate the seasons of life? How do we respond rightly and with wisdom to time under the sun? As we go through our text this morning, we're going to take it kind of in three chunks. We're going to see first this poem. The preacher starts off with a poem about time. We're going to see from that what our world actually is. Life as it is under the sun. Then the preacher turns to reflect on the poem. In verse 9, he asks a rhetorical question. He goes back to this issue of gain. And then he says in verse 10... That I have seen some things. He responds to what he sees in the poem. And we're going to see what the preacher wants us to observe out of the poem. And then in verses 12 to 15, he shifts his verb and says, I perceived, or I know. We're going to see from the poem 
And from what the preacher sees about time under the sun, how then we should live. What should we do about the facts before us? We're going to walk through this text following those three parts. Starting with the poem in verses 1 through 8. Steve did a, a wonderful job reading this poem reflectively for us. We're not going to read the whole thing. But I want us to make a few observations from the poem. The preacher tells us what he wants us to see from the poem right in verse 1, right? He says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Then he goes through this poem, a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. 28 times he uses the word time in this poem. If you count the couplets or sets of two lines, you see that there are seven. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know that seven is often an important number in the Bible. There's not some hidden Bible code behind this. The preacher's just arranging his poem this way to show us that what he's intending for us to see is this is a description of all of life under the sun. Seven is complete. A time to be born and a time to die. The bookends of life and everything in between it. For everything in life, there is a season. What the preacher wants us to see, first of all, is that all of life under the sun is seasonal. There are all kinds of times that you and I will walk through in life. If you've lived a long life already, you know that there are seasons in life. Right? Seasons to be born, seasons to die, seasons to plant, seasons to pluck up what is planted, to harvest, times to weep, times to laugh, etc. All kinds of times in this list are both times that we delight in, right? Times, what, what's happier than building, than, than embracing? There's times that we delight in, but there's also times of distress. There's times... To kill, which is likely referring to war. There's times to cast stones, which is also referring to the practice of casting stones into the fields of the enemy to make them useless. There's times in life that we don't want to face that distress us. And life is full of both these delights and these distressing times. The preacher wants us to see that all of life under the sun is seasonal. And what that means for us is that life under the sun changes. It doesn't stay the same. Eden was a perpetual summer. Was a season of constant delight. But when our first parents turned away from God, rebelled against him, and pursued sin and were cast out of the garden... In the ruins of Eden now, there are both delights and there are distresses. And we're not guaranteed one or the other. The preacher moves through this poem like the ticking of a clock that goes back and forth, back and forth. And that's how our life works too, isn't it? Some people describe their life as a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. It's the same kind of thing. Our lives change. Sometimes the changes are even overlapping. Sometimes the seasons in life are mixed together. It's like a snowstorm in May. We have those in Minnesota and it's like, whoa, what's happening? This is not supposed to be here. 
That happens in life too. Mother's Day is one example of when that kind of thing happens. Mother's Day is a day, obviously, to celebrate motherhood. And to make sure you call your mother, right? And wish her a happy Mother's Day. But it's also a time where many who would want to be mothers and are unable to be, mourn and weep. It's a time for laughter and happiness and joy. It's also a time for mourning and weeping. And it's mixed together, sometimes within the same family. Our ladies who have experienced miscarriage know that perfectly well. There's a bittersweetness. There's an overlap to the seasons. Other areas of life are just like this. There's joy mixed with sorrow. Because we live under the sun, because we live in the ruins of Eden, this is so. We don't choose whether we're in a time of delight or distress. These times, these seasons, are thrust upon us. What we see in this poem is that times are imposed on us. Time, in a sense, is a little bit tyrannical that way. We don't have a choice whether our season changes. We may be in a season that we enjoy, that life is good, that happiness is overflowing. We don't have the ability to choose to stay there. Because we know that around the bend, the next day or the next month or the next year could bring unspeakable tragedy to us. We don't get to choose when the times change and we don't get to choose what times we experience. Our lot in life is like a ship and these seasons are like the wind and the waves and the sea. And we're carried along by it without much say in it. The preacher wants us to see that here in this text. Wants us to see that you may have a time to tear, which is referring to rending the garments in sorrow and despair. Or you may be given a time to sow, a time to mend what was rended, a time to rejoice that God has restored your soul. But you don't get the say in it. The problem for us is that we don't do well with not getting a say in whether our seasons change or not. We don't do well with time imposed on us. We have a hard time navigating the imposition of time. See, we tend to fight to remain in good times. And we tend to do whatever we can to avoid or leave behind the sad seasons of life. It's understandable. No one wants to remain in a sad season of life. But we tend to think that we can do something about it. Our culture feeds this idea because our culture rejects the idea that we are not in control. Just think about the way our culture relates to death. Our culture says that if you are older and you are living a life that is less than optimal, then you have the right to choose your own time to die. And a physician can help you end your life at your own time. That's not submitting to the times and the seasons that the Lord has ordained. That's saying, I'm going to be in control. I'm going to do my way. On the other side 
of the coin, we have a culture that does not want to face the fact that we will all go through the season of death. So we have, instead of funerals now, celebrations of life. It is good to celebrate a life, yes. But there is a time for mourning. There is a time for weeping. There is a time to die. And to try to ignore that is as foolish as trying to plant corn in January. We live in a culture that wants to ignore it, and so we ourselves are not good at navigating those seasons. We are unskilled at navigating these seasons, and what happens as a result of that is that we can unintentionally hurt others who are going through seasons that we would rather avoid. See, the reality is living in a church body, living in a community of faith, we may not go through every single one of these seasons. We won't. It's not likely that most of us will go through a season where we're called upon to cast stones into the fields of our enemies. But the thing is, in the body together, as we walk through life united by Christ, various members of the body will go through seasons that you and I would rather avoid. We will have people in the body go through seasons of losing loved ones. We will have people go through seasons of intense depression and despair. You may be the one who goes through it, or the one sitting next to you, or across from you may be the one who goes through it. But we will all encounter those seasons, and if we are unskilled at navigating the seasons of life, then when that comes up, we'll do what we so often do, which is say something entirely unhelpful or inappropriate, or not say anything at all and sometimes cause more hurt, or say something like, this is only temporary, and and minimize the season and try to Help people look away from the season when in reality we should learn how to navigate through the season. We need to learn to navigate through all kinds of seasons. And part of what the preacher is doing in Ecclesiastes all the way through is teaching us the shape of life, the shape of reality. Forcing us to look at things we would rather not look at. Most of us would rather not look at the reality that everything we do will be forgotten someday. But the preacher looks that square in the face and says, here's how you deal with that. That's what he's doing here too. He's saying, there will come a time when you are confronted with someone who is mourning deeply. Maybe they've been abused terribly, evilly. And they tell you about it and you're confronted with how do I navigate this in light of God and his word and his will. Friends, we must be prepared and the preacher is trying to prepare us. We need wisdom, not trite formulas to navigate the seasons of life. There are no five easy steps to bury your child. It requires wisdom. And that's what the preacher is giving us. That's what the preacher is calling us to see in this text is the God-given wisdom that helps us navigate the seasons. In order to know how to read the weather of the times, in order to know how to navigate the seasons of life before us, 
we need to know who does set the times. If we don't have control, who does? And why has he made the world this way? That's what the preacher wants us to see. Look at verse 9. The preacher moves from the poem to a question. What gain has the worker from his toil? What gain has the worker from his toil? His whole point is to say, look, if you're looking at time and trying to make it work for you, what gain can you possibly hope for? Because you can't control any of these. For everything in life, there is a season, and this is outside of your control. Which means you can't manipulate time to get the gain you would like to get out of life. You can't guarantee that good times will come. And you can't change the bad times. What gain has the worker from all his toil, the preacher says. He wants you to see instead what he says in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He wants us to see first that it's the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. We do not set the times because God himself does. God himself is sovereign over all of time. Sovereign means in control of. Means ordaining all of time. God himself is the one who sets the time to be born and the time to die. God himself is the one who sets the time to break down and the time to build up. God himself is the one who sets the time to mourn and the time to dance. It's a business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And God himself has designed it. Our affirmation of faith for the elders puts it this way. It says, we believe that God from all eternity... In order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. That's a fancy way of saying that God sets the seasons. God sets the times. It is God who is in control of this. We are not. But you know what? That is a good thing. Because look where the preacher goes next in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God sets the times because he, according to his own counsel and will and wisdom, is making everything beautiful in its time. Those of you who have gone through extreme heartaches in life or known someone who has might be thinking, Everything? He makes everything beautiful? This is not saying that God makes everything evil good. This is not saying that someday we will look on evil and say, you know what, that's actually good. This is not saying that someday you will look at the tragedies in your life and say, you know what, that was okay. That was good. That's not what it's saying when the preacher is saying God makes everything beautiful in its time. He's saying that God makes everything beautifully fitting in its time. I think the NIV even translates it that way. The idea is that God makes everything 
work together according to his sovereign plan for all of history to produce good, to produce beauty, to be beautifully fitting into the tapestry of all of his works. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, there is a wonderful harmony in the divine providence and all its disposals so that the events of it, when they come to be considered in their relations and tendencies, together with the seasons of them, will appear very beautiful to the glory of God and the comfort of those that trust in him. Though we see not the complete beauty of providence, yet we shall see it and a glorious sight it will be when the mystery of God shall be finished. Then everything shall appear to have been done in the most proper time and it will be the wonder of all eternity. What that means is God makes everything beautiful in its time. Everything beautifully fitting for its time so that every season you go through in life, every season I go through in life, we will look back and say that was done in the most proper time. And it will cause us to wonder in eternity. It will cause us to delight. We will say, yes, that was fitting. That may not have been good. It may not have been pleasant. It may have been incredibly painful and incredibly sorrowful. But you know what? In the pattern of God's plan for all eternity, it was good. It was beautiful. It was fitting. There's a wonderful harmony In the divine providence. God makes everything beautiful in its time. The preacher says also. He has put eternity into man's heart. That's why we can know that there will be a beauty to all of this. He has put eternity into our hearts. He has given us an awareness of time. That the present is not all there is. I was thinking about that this morning as I let Chester out. Chester's out there just walking around in the yard, sniffing, has no idea that we're going to leave him with the Schultzes and go on vacation. He has no knowledge of present, or future, excuse me. And sadly, he doesn't have enough knowledge to know that in 20 days we're going to come back for him. So he's probably going to be pretty sad when we leave. We are not like that though. God has put eternity into our hearts. We still have Eden in our veins. We have an awareness that time passes. And an awareness that there is a future and a hope. And there is a past that God redeems. God has put eternity into our hearts. But the problem the preacher says. The end of verse 11 Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, the problem is that God has given us awareness of time, but he hasn't given us mastery over it. He's given us the ability to know that there is a big picture, but not the ability to see it. In our creatureliness, we are limited in our knowledge. Looking at God's master work. We are like people trying to appreciate the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel from an inch away. If you stood right next to the wall and you tried to see the beauty of this whole 
chapel, this beautiful art. All you could see is tiny little brush strokes and cracks, right? You couldn't see the whole thing. You couldn't appreciate the beauty of the whole. Because you can't zoom out far enough to see it. God has put those limits on us. He has put eternity into our hearts so that we know there is a big picture. And yet he has put it into our hearts in a way so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't get to see the whole thing. I don't know about you, but our awareness of eternity combined with our limited knowledge is frustrating to me. It feels like it would be so much easier to accept the painful things in life, to live rightly in a season that is hard, knowing that there's a big picture and being able to see it. God, why would you orchestrate it this way? God, why would you cause us to go through this suffering? It's frustrating and painful, our limits. Why would God do that? Why would God design us that way? Why would he put eternity into our hearts, yet so that we cannot find out what he does from beginning to end? He does that so that we'll come to the conclusions that the preacher does in verses 12 to 15. He does that so that we see what comes next. Look at verses 12 to 15. The preacher says this, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. God puts eternity in our hearts and then limits our ability to see what he does from beginning to end so that... First of all, we would be happy and holy. The preacher says this, there's nothing better. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. To be happy and holy. Nothing better. Remember, we came upon that phrase in chapter 2 at the end, right? There's nothing better in chapter 2, 24. Nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The preacher's echoing that here. He's just adding a few details. Nothing better for us, verse 12, than to be joyful and to do good. To be joyful or to be happy, enjoying God's good gifts. As he says in verse 13, eating and drinking and taking pleasure in the toil that God has given us. This is God's good gift to us. This is meant to bring us joy. Not only to be happy, but to be holy. There's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good. To be holy, to be like God in obeying his commandments. To do good to our neighbor. To love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what God has given us to do. To be happy and holy. This is the right response to the frustration of eternity in our hearts with limited knowledge. 
It's joy-filled faith. Joy and obedience. But how do we do that when times of sorrow hit? How do we do that when times of distress hit? How do we be happy and holy when something horrendous happens to our children? How do we be happy and holy when something horrible happens to our best friend? How do we be happy and holy when tragedy strikes our nation? It's not by looking to the future with naive optimism. It's not by saying, you know what? The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. Right? It's not that. It's a beautiful sentiment, but it's naive because we cannot control it. We are not happy and holy by naive optimism. We are also not happy and holy by loathing the present with bitter frustration. Just sit there fuming. That God would have you go through this. Or that God would have someone you love go through this. That's not going to lead to joy-filled faith. To happy holiness. It's not longing for the past which was better. Because you can't bring it back. It's just going to cause more frustration. The secret to being happy and holy. Even in the seasons of distress and sorrow. Is to fear the Lord. That's what he wants us to see out of this. There's a connection you see between verses 12 and 13 and verses 14 and 15. The way we learn to be happy and holy is through fearing the Lord. That's the reason that God has set up the world how he has set it up. Look what the preacher says in verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God is sovereign over all of time. And here's what he says. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is incredibly important to understanding the preacher's point here. God has done it so that people fear before him. This is the first mention of the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes. A book about wisdom. Which we know from Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Right? We know from when we first looked at this book that where the preacher is going in, verse, in chapter 12 is the end of the, everything has been heard. Fear the Lord and keep his commandments. So when the preacher says God has done this so that we would fear him, we need to pay attention to that. God has designed the world as such, so that we would fear him. In other words, God's absolute sovereignty over all of time and every season that you face in life. And God's putting eternity into your heart so that you know there's a bigger picture. But denying you the ability to see the big picture in whole while you're under the sun. God did that so that you would learn to fear the Lord. God designed us that way so that we would learn to fear the Lord. What does that mean? Why is that good news? Here's why that's important. Fearing the Lord in this context means 
trusting in him that what the preacher says in verse 11 is true, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. See, that's a hard pill to swallow when we see little pieces of the picture that are ugly. That's a hard pill to swallow when we are hurt by life and by the season we're in. It's a hard pill to swallow when we see those we love hurting and aching and longing to be out of this terrible season that they're in. It's a hard pill to swallow when we're mourning and weeping. But friends, we are called to trust that the Lord does indeed make everything beautiful in its time and that what he has done from beginning to end will not be undone. And that what he has done is good. The cross of Christ is the ultimate proof of this. The ultimate testimony that God will make everything beautiful in its time. Think about Peter for a second. In Matthew. In Matthew 16. Jesus is telling Peter about his coming death. Listen to, listen to what he says. Matthew 16 21, Matthew writes this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Over and over, John's gospel talks about Jesus' crucifixion in terms of time. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then his hour has come. And Jesus says, my hour has come. Galatians talks about God sending forth his son into the world at the fullness of time. And what Jesus is telling Peter is now the season that I'm in, the season that is here upon me, is one of torture and death. One of unjust punishment. One of mockery and hatred. It is a time to be hated. It is a time to die. And what does Peter say? Verse 22 of Matthew 16. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, that this should now, shall never happen to you. Right? This season isn't what God has for you. This season isn't right for you. You must need more faith. Peter's taking him aside and rebuking him. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's problem was that he was not fearing the Lord. But he was certain that he knew what the right season was. And he was rejecting the season that God had before him, before Christ. In going to the cross, Jesus goes through the worst season any of us could possibly imagine. And it was the season that God had for him, and it was beautifully fitting. And Peter came to realize this later. In 1 Peter, he writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter came to know the beauty of the cross. Just like we have. Most of us know that already, but we don't think of it as often as we ought. That God made the cross beautifully fitting in its time. And all of history revolves around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all of history will too be made beautiful in its time. The purpose of God giving us a glimpse of this, but not the full picture, is to cause us to trust that that is true because he says it's true. To cause us to fear him. In other words, it works this way. One commentator writes, better than I could explain it. Could it be that we do not stand in awe or fear God because we cannot see him? When we see lightning strike close by, we stand in awe. When we see a tornado approaching, we hunker down in fear. When Israel saw lightning on Mount Sinai and heard the thunder, all the people who were in the camp trembled. When we see God, we fear him. But quote, when the signs of God's awesome presence were gone, the people of God soon rebelled against God. Given our failure to stand in awe before God, the teacher urges us to consider the hand of God we see in creation around us. God sets the times to which we are subject. God set the time for our birth and the time for our death and every appropriate time in between. In other words, God is in control and we are completely dependent on him. When we reflect deeply on God's greatness and our own dependence on God, we are bound to stand in awe before him. End quote. God orchestrated time so that we would learn the lesson of fearing him. Because that's one way we can see him. That's one way we can be aware of his presence and his work. If we are going through sorrowful times, our only hope is that God makes everything beautiful in its time. If we are going through joyful times, our only hope is that there is eternal joy in Christ Jesus, even though this joy may fade. God orchestrated it this way to teach us to fear him. We attempt to control or ignore the seasons. And our attempts to do so are like the people of God digging these empty cisterns that hold no water, forsaking the one true and living water. Through times and through seasons of your life, God is calling you back to fear him, to return to him, to trust in him. We will be happy and holy people if we heed that call. We will be happy and holy people if we return to the Lord and fear and trust him as the sovereign Lord of all time. So friends, I exhort you and encourage you When you think of your life the way it is now, when you look at a clock, when you think about time in general, acknowledge the purpose of that time. As it ticks away, acknowledge the purpose that it is meant to teach you to fear the Lord. And then be happy and holy in that fear. It's a wonderful thing. It's a safe place for God's people to be. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray that you would grant us the grace to daily learn the lesson you are trying to teach us, which is that you are in control and we are not, and that is a good thing. God, forgive us for the ways we buck against that lesson, for the foolishness that we would think to know better and teach us to fear you. We know that that leads to the path of wisdom and life because Christ Jesus himself has granted it to us. So would you help us, we pray. Amen.